going back to your autism, you had this T-shirt made up. Yes. I, I remember, which I thought was very creative, right? Can you tell us about that? So when I was gonna when I was gonna go public and when I thought about it and I was praying about it, I said, you know what, I you know, I need I made a shirt that just said autistic Catholic and it had kind of uh the one of the symbols for autism, which is kind of the infinity symbol, but with a, a, a kind of a, a gradient rainbows around it, not and, and things then Catholic with the papal flag behind it. You know, and I was just thinking like that something like that would be very clearly expressive of you know, being both autistic and Catholic in that sense. And so I have it, if you go on Redbubble and you search it, it's available. Anybody can buy a copy of it. Um, you know, I, I got a copy myself in black so I could wear it over top with the collar still coming out through the, through there. Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Father Matthew Schneider is a very interesting priest in today's world. He is, in fact, a high-profile Roman Catholic priest with the Legionaries of Christ who went public with his condition known as autism on the day celebrated as Autism Day. He is based in Virginia here in the U.S., and he is my guest coming up. I hope you're all well and enjoying Dig Life Deep, the show once known as Life on Planet Earth. Our website and other exciting changes are coming very soon. Dig Life Deep. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. My guest is Father Matthew Schneider, and he has the condition known as autism, and he is not shy talking about autism, nor his pure energy and zest for life and the priesthood at a real turning point and upheaval in the West from the social and political to the secular and religious. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Father Schneider, thank you for joining me on the show. This is a great pleasure. Thank you for having me, John. You know, I was taken by your social media posts. That was one of the things that inspired me to reach out to you for my show. But also, of course, the fact that you've been very open about your autism. So the way you've commented on all of this and the way you've spoken publicly was was interesting. But before we get into that, I just want to find out, how's your summer going? It's going not bad. Uh, the big thing for me this summer was I was up in Canada for my sister's wedding on at the beginning of May. So she got married to a young man. And uh, now everybody, all my siblings are now married. So she was the last one. And how many siblings have you? I have three uh, sisters, all younger. I'm the oldest. Where are you from originally? I'm originally from Calgary, Canada. If you know, if you know where that is, that's it's north of Montana for American right. uh, American listeners. It's okay. kind of out west for people from the UK or elsewhere in the world. It's kind of Western Canada, but 
on the east side of the mountains. We have the mountains right there. Like from my parents' house, you can see the whole horizon. It's just mountains. I, I was reading something you wrote about your family and that your dad's a big hunter. And long before it was popular, you guys were organic. Yeah, well, I don't know how long before it was popular. So when, when uh, in, in 1999, I grew up in the city of Calgary. And then in 99, when I was in high school, my parents moved just outside the city to a small farm and started raising organic, started like the process of making that farm fully organic and things. And, uh, and so, and so they've been doing that since, you know, for 20, 22 years or so, uh, since they moved out there. So that's, that's where they've lived since then. They live on a small farm just outside Calgary. That was quite a big move and obviously a very pleasant one, I'm sure. And, um, it opened up other horizons and, how did it influence your thoughts about life and God? I think it was it wasn't super dramatic for me because I was already in high school and I wanted to stay at the same high school, so I drove into town every day to go to okay. high school and and then I was like a few years later I went to the university and then I entered the seminary, so I didn't really spend nearly as much time there as you know all my younger siblings who were in you know middle school or elementary school at the time, and so. So what happens, but there are a few things that I did notice, you know, just kind of going out there, you know, look, sometimes I go out and, you know, there's a railway line near it, you could cycle along and then, you know, kind of, you know, the empty field, just lie down, look up to the sky and think of like the magnitude of that all, Um, you know, it was kind of was one thing that really helped introduce me to kind of that, you know, prayer life as I was, you know, as I was there in high school and things. Yeah, I'm sure it was magnificent. Of course, you can find God everywhere, even in the big city. Oh, definitely. I mean, I I I, I lived in Calgary's a decent sized city. It's like you know, it's, it was probably about a million people at the time. So I, I kind of lived mainly in the city, even though my parents' house was just outside of it. I want to talk about something that you know a lot about, and I my reaction was uh, at some level surprised that you were so open about it but you spoke publicly in the past few years about your condition if, if you will if that's the right word and can you tell us about it it's your autism you came out and spoke about it and it's almost part of your own ministry in life yeah well i think that that i think that there's a lot of value in having for people who are autistic to see like examples like that or things like that. Like even I forget the name of the Bishop. Now there was a Bishop a few years ago who said, look, I'm, I'm kind of stepping back for the next few months because I had, I had depression and I needed to get some treatment for that and things. And I think when we're open like that, we make it so that it's no longer like this super taboo subject. And we other people, encourage other people to get help when they need it for, for whatever conditions they have, whatever, whatever things they have. So, you know, autism is, is, is kind of an interesting condition because it's so variable person to person, how it expresses, because it's more of, it's kind of like you have, it's kind of like a checklist and you have at least one in, in three different categories in the checklist, at least a few, you don't have. And so there's almost no single thing that every autistic person has um, because all of them are like, you have to have like, three of these five or, or, you know, four of these six or something. And some of them can even be opposite. Like one of the things is sensory sensitivity and you can either be hypersensitive or hyposensitive, you know, hyposensitive would be like, you know, you, you, you break your finger. You don't even realize it. Hypersensitive would be like, 
you know, even inside, I need to be wearing sunglasses all because the lights are so bright. And in your case, where do you fall in the spectrum? So I, I don't, I think that there's the way to look at it is to look at like all the different aspects of it, mm-hmm. because I don't think that like, it's not really like a linear spectrum. It's kind of like you have certain things that are different and need, and you need accommodations in certain ways to, to live your life fully. And like, I'm not, I can be somewhat in there and like the hyper hyposensitive, but like that is my, for example, that's not very strong in me. I know, for example, if me and some other people go outside, I'm the first one to put on sunglasses because I get a, like, it feels absolutely horrible if I am outside without sunglasses for almost any length of time, even when it's pretty cloudy outside, you know, so I, I am somewhat sensitive, but that's not like way outside the ordinary. But I do know like myself, I'm very, I have a lot of difficulty reading social cues and and things like that. And I have, and, and social cues and and I have, and I, and I have a lot of things, you know, internally, just not, not being aware. And like one of the biggest things for me that made me realize, oh yes, this diagnosis was after I was diagnosed. I had a formal diagnosis, and I was talking to one, and I was reading up on on autism. Afterwards, I was talking to one of the other priests, and I said, and and the book had said something about, you know, where people kind of subconsciously intuit what the other person is thinking by their, you know, their facial expressions, by their vocal intonation, things. And most people do this subconsciously, you don't think about it. And I asked him, I asked a few of the priests in the community, and they were like, yeah, obviously. And I was like, oh, like, I've always had to, like, do that consciously. And, like, I just assumed everybody had to because that's, you know, how I was. But that's obviously, like, I'm using – a different part of the brain that's not usually used for that to kind of supplement. So I'm at least, you know, passable at reading people's faces, reading emotions, understanding what people are thinking, but I'm not like, I'm still not like, you know, the greatest I'm not, you know, if <laughs> and, and, and I admit it and I, and I realized like, I'm not going to be, you know, perfect in that. Um, you know, so those, those are some things that, that, that kind of come out in my life. I'm also very, um, what, what what autistics would generally call stimming, but I, but often is called fidgeting. Like I ha- like I'm constantly doing like other little motions. Like if you ha- if anybody's watching the video, I'm spinning a pen here while I'm talking to John. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and it's just it's uh, the thing is that uh, th- those type of things uh, those type of things are characteristics where you have repeated repeated uh, motions. You know, one of the stereotypical ones is like the hand flapping, or the ones you know. Things more just like, you know, spinning a pen or clicking a pen, which I've learned really annoys people. So I've learned not to do that one, but I have tapped into other other kinds of stims or fidgets that uh, that helped me out. When were you diagnosed? I was diagnosed in 2000 and, okay, let me think here. My mind just went blank now. 13. Roughly. I think it's 2016, January 2016. I did, I did most of my tests in 2015. And so then, were you a priest or in the... Oh, I was, yeah, I was definitely, I was ordained a priest, so... And then you um, only discovered when you were a priest that you were... Yeah, because I had gotten through the seminary. I'd done ministry upfield for, for several years in my community between philosophy and theology. And then as I was a priest, after my first assignment, I was assigned to be chaplain to a school. And they thought, hey, there's something out, there's something like that seems a little off on how he's reading the social cues of kids. And they, they said, you know, maybe he, he should go into some other ministry after a year. So I did that. So I went and did more of kind of, you know, started working behind the scenes for the community, kind of 
you know, like the chancery equivalent in the diocese. <laughs> and, uh, and then about a year later, I got diagnosed. I actually, actually went to, went to, to look at a diagnosis twice. The first time that the psychologist didn't really do any tests that were super specific for autism and he didn't really diagnose it. But looking back at the tests he did, none of those tests would be particularly good at diagnosing autism. So in hindsight, it didn't surprise me. And then the second psychologist did a lot more tests that were much more specific to, to autism itself. You said that it had an impact on your early work uh, with your order um, in terms of reading social cues and being a school chaplain. How does it and did it impact the ministries that we associate with the priests in particular, celebrating Mass, the Eucharist, and those kind of duties? I don't think it affects it too much. I mean, I could imagine sometimes in confession, I might not pick up on a slight social cue or something. Uh, like it just, I just wouldn't pick up on it. Uh, but I, you know, obviously the sacramental character is there, you know, uh, you know, the same issue, the same, you know, the, the Eucharist is still the Eucharist. Uh, you know, I'm reasonably good at preaching. I'm not the best preacher in the world. I don't think my people have told me at times my, my delivery in saying mass isn't like, you know, could be a little flat or a little fast versus others, but not like, not like a huge, like, oh my goodness, this is a major problem. It's more like, you know, like one person who had hearing aids said they had trouble because I guess it's, you know, it's hard to hear with hearing aids and I talk a little faster than normal. And so it made, it made, it made it difficult for, for them to, to hear me during mass. But I don't think that that's, you know, that's not, that's a minor thing. Like all of us have, you know, minor things we probably have to work on if we're, if we're preaching or saying mass like that (laughs) pretty regularly. So. Well, hearing aids are an interesting phenomenon. I know there's um, a lot of elderly people go to church and a lot of people go to church, but I have this sort of recurring duty, not so often, depending on when the individual is at church, he has in hearing aids. So I sort of have to read out all the announcements after church. What did he say about the bingo schedule next week? <laughs> oh, yes. I, I, I could imagine. I, I've known I've known a bunch of people with hearing aids, and they can be very different. Uh, you know, I remember my grandfather, who since passed away when I was a teenager, his his back in the day, the hearing aids were very much, they catch all the sound. So, like, we were in, um, we'd been going around, like, the science center, uh, you know, like a normal kind of thing, visiting all the different things. And uh, afterwards, we were about to leave, and we we're in kind of the lobby, and there was like some some kind of science science show going on. There's a lot of people chatting, and he actually had to take them out because he could like, and I had to basically like speak like two inches from his ear because otherwise he just gets so much background noise he couldn't he couldn't yeah. filter out like all the background noise versus you know, his grandson talking to him and saying, you know, as we were discussing, you know, going back home and, you know, whether we want to stay a little longer and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think they've come a long way, though, uh, the, the aides. But um, at school, you were very, you were a bright student. Uh, you passed your exams and got good grades. And you even had, which you've written about publicly, you had a, a, a nickname because of your intellectual abilities. Well, they would call, they in the seminary, sometimes they say Schneiderpedia because I have a very... <laughs> A very good memory. I mean, obviously, right now I'm writing a doctoral thesis in moral theology. So obviously, that you know, you're not going to send somebody to do that if they're if they if they have a chat if they're going to if that's going to be too much for them. And mm-hmm. obviously, you need the grades in the in the 
in the studies before that to qualify and things. So yeah, I can, I tend to remember a lot of details and a lot of just, you know, like, you know, uh, a lot of stuff like that. And so that worked very well in, you know, studying, uh, you know, studying theology and philosophy and, and, uh, and such in the seminary. So. Well, that's, that's, that's great. How, what ultimately made you go public about it? You, 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 you wrote a piece and it got a lot of reaction and even on your social media handle you you describe yourself as the autistic priest so yes. it gets a lot of attention well, was there something conscious going on in your mind did you have to get the permission of your superiors to do that well obviously I, I spoke to my superiors beforehand and they were all they were all fine with it and things and and I think for me there were a few different there were a few different factors one was kind of that I I did see already kind of a need for like help in that area from an artistic perspective that was very, very limited within the church. Uh, you know, there's, there's one priest uh, who uh, wishes to remain anonymous who writes a blog called Aspie Priest, if you go and search for it online. Mm. And I, like, I know his name because he told me, but uh, he wishes to remain anonymous. And then there's a few others who have talked about it, but not really, there's no, there's really like almost no books from like, prayer for autistics or autism from the inside or anything like that. And that was like kind of a first motivation is kind of, you know, all that help for all those people. And then the second motivation is also is kind of related is more just for, for, uh, you know, for family and friends that they don't lose hope. Like, Oh, we have this, you know, we have our eight year old who, who uh, was diagnosed with autism, you know, and they, some can they, you can easily, you can easily kind of just think, Oh, this is just like, everything bad and if you have a whole series of examples of autistics who are you know reasonably successful maybe not you know, like the most successful people in the world but you have you know you might have like a lawyer and a priest and a medical doctor and you know a businessman and different things or an inventor and, and things like that so it doesn't feel like oh my goodness this kid can't do anything and third I knew in my own in my own situation on a more you know on a more personal level if I go out in the field and I'm working, and, you know, if I'm working, you know, say I'm working in a seminary or something and I'm talking to one of the, the seminarians and I don't pick up on some little social cue he has, if he knows I'm autistic, he's much less likely to be like, oh, that, that priest is just like rude and neat. It's like, oh, he just didn't, he just didn't pick it up uh, and things. So, so it helped me out in the end too. But that was kind of like the third reason, not the primary reason uh, for myself of going public with it. Um, I, you know, I'd already told everybody in my family, everybody in my immediate religious community, you know, and all my superiors, they all knew before, long beforehand. So they've been very supportive of what you're doing. Oh, definitely. I think, uh, you know, they, they've had, they've, you know, they approved that they approved, uh, right now I'm working on a book with Pauline press on prayer for autistics. That's going to come out sometime, hopefully in the next six months to year. It's in kind of the final stages of editing at the moment. And, uh, there's there's variation on the title, but it's definitely going to be about prayer for autistics, and it's going to have uh, about a third to a half of it is going to be kind of a systematic presentation of autistic prayer, and then the last half to two thirds is more individual devotions. Uh, there's fifty two uh, fifty two like two page devotions uh, for that second half, um, and so and so. And so they've, they, like all my spirits have approved the book. They approved like proposing the book. They approved, you know, the book as, as, as I, as I had finished it, you know, it was more or less a polished draft that I sent to Pauline press. And then, 
and then I they, they have to just double check it now once we go through all the editing. Uh, they're not checking it in between editing, but yeah. So they, they've been very supportive uh, in that, very supportive in you know me me talking about it, writing about it, and things. So. And what's the what's the title or working title again here? The, the working title is uh, "God Looks on the Autistic Mind with Love: Fifty-Two Devotions for Autistics and Those Who Love Us." Fifty-two, because about fifty-two okay. weeks, in the, weeks okay. in the year. If you ever did any editing with writing with books, sometimes you present an idea and then the publisher adapts it and things. Yeah. What I presented to Pauline was thirty devotions. They said, "No, we like to go with fifty-two for the weeks of the year instead of thirty yeah. for a month." And so I said, makes "Okay, sense. I'm not like I can change that." It's just just a lot more work. <laughs> it's well, it's a it's a decent amount more work, yeah. But I'm I I was you know I was willing to do that because that's not like you know that's not changing the, the like if they said oh like something completely radical that wouldn't make sense for the book. But yeah, yeah. that was that was more Pauline's idea. My idea was like thirty because I think of you know because. I don't know if you've seen it. There's a lot of those books, you know, like uh, where it's 30 or 52 or 21 devotions. And they're just a, a series of short devotionals that, mm. you know, I think is a very popular uh, uh, type of book that can really help people pray. How big is the autistic population? Uh, current estimates are about one and a half to two percent of the population. Uh there's there's a few variations, but most of them are one in 50 something, like one in 54, one in 58, one in 60, somewhere in that range. So just under two percent of the population uh, is is assumed to be autistic, uh, you know, in the U.S. or elsewhere. I mean, that's the that's the estimate that most are going with today. So so do you see yourself doing more work with that population? Oh, definitely. I think I think, for example, uh, one of the things that a lot of a lot of diocese have started is maybe like an autistic mass where they they pay, pay attention more to the sensory things. So they don't overwhelm people's senses. Where they help out with, you know, the repetition. Like like autistic people can be very much that they need the exact same schedule. So if you're doing mm. a mass for autistics, you would mm. use like the same songs every every week. Let me understand that correctly. So in other words, if their routine is thrown off balance that impacts them negatively? Yeah, much more than others. I mean, I know myself, I'm not super, I don't need like the same routine every day. But if you tell me something with like that morning that, that throws my schedule out of balance, it really, it, it's really difficult for me more than, I've, mm. than I can understand it for other people. If I mm. know like 48 hours beforehand, I can, I can, you know, I don't seem to have too many problems. But if I just find out like uh, last minute, I'm not, yeah. I'm not the best at adapting. And it, I know it, that. It gets become stressful. <laughs> yeah. It, it's very stressful. Just, you know, eats on you. And so, you know, it's not like with, with, with myself knowing if it's 48 hours before I'm usually pretty fine. I can usually schedule most things unless, you know, there's some kind of emergency, like somebody, somebody has, you know, a heart attack or somebody get, hits, sure. gets hit with a car or something. Sure. I, I'm wondering, is there anything uh, definable uh, about, people with autism you know in terms of their religious faith or spirituality or their instincts about god and the other world any interesting ideas there well in general uh the the research seems to indicate that there's a higher number of atheists among autistics and i think that there that there's two reasons for that i think one thing is that autistics tend not to be the kind of yeah, I'm Catholic and I attend mass once or twice a year just because, you know, and I'm still, I still kind of believe in God. They're mm. much more kind of binary, like either God exists and 
I'm going to make a good effort to go to a regular religious practice, like going to mass once a week, or, you know, whether it's, you know, going to Baptist service once a week, if they're not Catholic, or whatever, and, or I'm not going to believe in God, there's, there's much there, the, the central area of kind of like, I kind of believe in God, and I go occasionally, it kind of gets, uh, you know, pushed in one way or the other, I think, in autism, because we're much more kind of that way. And, and I think a lot, the second thing is just, I think part of it is that, you know, understanding uh, God, according to like how an autistic brain structure works, a little different. And, 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 mm. and a lot of the, the catechetical programs haven't done a great job in that. And in fact, oftentimes youth ministry, where it's like, where it's like super emotional and not kind of, you know, stru- not as structured as rational presentation can be even more challenging for autistic people because we're kind of, we're le- much less likely to, to just take just because as an answer, you know, for example, you, you have the stereotypical thing where the kid asks, you know, why is the sky blue? Well, that's because of, you know, how light refracts through the, through the rain, through the water in the sky and something. And then the kid asks like, why is, you know, why is there water in the, in the air? You know, and all the different questions uh, you know, or the same thing, like, why do we go to mass on, on Sunday? Well, cause, cause that's what, that's what the church asks. Well, why does the church ask that? Because we need to worship God. Right. And, and those type of questions, we tend to not just take kind of the socially accepted thing as, as much because, because we aren't, we aren't as adapted to kind of normal social relationships. So, so it's, so the kind of, you know, usual, social pressure or social kind of social norm norm norms don't work and so and we're also more to like go deeper on those questions we're going to keep asking why 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 and so with that we're either we're either going to get a solid reason hey god exists and i should practice religion in some way on a regular basis like once a week or something at least or it doesn't seem that god exists so like if he doesn't exist why even go occasionally to mass mm. Well, so, in your case, the religious upbringing or introduction to your Catholic faith clearly worked. You became a priest. So yes. how do you explain that? <laughs> well, I think I think in the same way. I mean, I, I, I think that there are plenty of sincerely religious autistic people. I just think that it's more of kind of the middle. I mean, you know, my mm-hmm. parents are very, are very uh, you know, joyful. And, you know, we went to mass every Sunday when I was a kid. Uh, no matter what, uh, I remember we'd go out camping and uh, we'd get back like in the afternoon and we'd have to go like halfway across town to find the parish at a Sunday after evening mass because mm. the parish I grew up in, we, they didn't have a Sunday evening mass. They had Saturday evening and then like three, I think three masses on Sunday morning. But if you weren't at church by like 1230 for the last mass, there wasn't another option at that parish. But if we were out camping and we got home at four in the afternoon, okay, we're, we're, you know, shower up and we're going to the six o'clock mass, you know, 20 minutes away. So that was kind of the upbringing I had as a kid. So it was very much, you know, that was, that was something we weren't missing no matter what. You grew up in a joyful household. That doesn't hurt at all. Oh, definitely. I mean, my, my parents are, are still very joyful. Uh, you know, my mom is like the super, they're my parents, like the super grandparents, you know, like they, Every, my uh, two of my three sisters live within about half a mile of my parents. And so their, their kids are over all the time. Uh, you know, just like my, my sister was just texting the, the group chat this morning about uh, her son helping out grandpa with his gardening, you know, just like, <laughs> yeah. When and why did you decide to become a priest? When I was in college, 
Um, I was studying computer electrical engineering, and I had. And college about was where? Uh, University of Calgary, just a local state school. Okay. Um, I had I had thought about I was pretty serious about my faith by that point. I was the sacristan at the church at the the, the campus ministry. I guess technically not a church, however you want to call it. And I was a, the campus minister. I was the cha- the the sacristan there. And one day the uh, the person who was directing youth ministry for the diocese came and gave us a presentation on World Youth Day 2000, which I had not gone to because. Like, I didn't have the money, I don't think, uh, you know, in Rome. And trying to get us all to sign up for World Youth Day 2003 in Toronto. And so I, 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 you know, it was there. And it was just kind of a video slash slideshow. And at that point, the, one of the words was John Paul II from there. And he said, be not afraid to be the saints in the new millennium. And I just felt like, you know, no, like God was dead. Like, I was listening to that. I was feeling like, okay, that that moment was kind of like, it kind of clicked. And I said, no, I really should check out this priesthood thing because I mm. kind of thought a little bit about it in the back of my head. And and so I so that was in February. And then I went to the diocese. I went to uh, Legion of Christ, who I'm a member of. And I, you know, was in contact with a few other orders, never ended up visiting them. And then I and so I joined that summer, you know, six, eight months later or whatever it would be. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that our daughters have what they need to grow and learn. But that isn't the case for nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. that struggle with hunger. Childhood hunger is a heartbreaking reality that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and provides it to families and children in need. You can help kids in need in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Father Matthew Schneider, and he has the condition known as autism, and he's not shy talking about autism, nor his pure energy and zest for life and the priesthood at a real turning point and upheaval in the West from the social and political to the secular and religious. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Well, you brought it up, um, the Legionaries of Christ doing great work in the world, but it had some recent past issues that caused a lot of pain, got widely reported, and now it's rebuilding, if you will. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, so there, the um, uh, Maciel Maciel, who started the Legionaries of Christ, um, he was, after his death, it was revealed publicly that he had been... Uh, unfaithful to the to the vow of chastity with a whole bunch with a with a great number of people both uh in consensual and in kind of coercive of relationships uh it and so and so that was that was you know obviously a big a big issue and that came out and so at, that was in i think 2009 and right after that pope bennett uh pope benedict at the time asked for sent vis, uh, visitors to us to come and talk to all of us all throughout like the world and kind of do a report and things. And so uh, that came out. I, I ended up sitting down with uh, Archbishop Chaput for half an hour <laughs> talking about my experience in the Legion and because uh, he was a visitor for North America, uh, Chaput was. And then and that was the kind of the start. It seemed that, you know, it was, seemed very clear from them that there was a good work going on in the Legion that uh, there was a lot to do to really build uh, that, that, that could be built on this. And it wasn't just dependent on Maciel. And so from there, uh, we have, we had, I can't remember exactly how long, but like 
six or eight years where we had kind of an assistant, uh, one of the Cardinals, one of, well, I think it was technically an archbishop when he first started, but he was a Cardinal by the time he finished, uh, was helping us out very regularly, going through all the documents, you know, uh, going through all, like, through through the things of like, okay, was, you know, let's get all the the kind of, all the things in order, all the spirituality to kind of very clearly expressed and not really, you know, independently of Maciel and things. And, and so that went through and we had, we had new constant, we've had a, a very dramatically revised constitution since then. And then all the kind of secondary documents you have in a community and a real change. And there's a lot of changes in like little things, how they're done within the house to make sure that it's, you know, that everything possible is done to prevent something like something like that from happening in the future. When you learned about that, Father Matthew, did it, it shock you clearly, but did it shake your faith? No, I mean, it didn't super shake my faith personally, you know, because I'd, I'd heard about priests being abusive before that because it was 2009. So obviously we'd had the whole, yeah, yeah for, for a while. And so I was, you know, that part, at least my faith, no. I mean, I thought about a little bit about, you know, my own future in the community because I was, I was a brother at the time. And I did, and I did consider, you know, depending on how things went, whether I'd want to, you know, switch to a different community in the U.S. or something, you know, like, because I did feel by that point, I was very clearly to myself that I did have a vocation to be a priest. I did have a vocation to be a religious, uh, but where, like, you know, and, and I did feel identified with the allegiance charism, but depending on how things go from something like that, it could kind of like have, have a very negative effect on how the charism is expressed or something. And I did start thinking about, okay, like, you know, if, if things go really south, where am I, you know, what, what communities, what communities might I want to apply to? But I never, I never did anything beyond just, you know, a few thoughts about that. And, uh, and then, yeah, so that's, that was my own personal experience of it. I mean, it was, it was kind of tough for a lot of people, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because for me, it was, I never really, I, I had never been close to Maciel myself. I, I'd met him in passing. I'd shaken his, shaken his hand once. Yeah. So it was not like, you know, super close because by the time I joined in 01, you know, there were a few thousand legions around the world and, and it wasn't like he was directly in contact with everybody. I mean, he was close to Pope John Paul II. Um, he was known for his charisma and his major organizational ability. The Legionaries of Christ had oh, a lot oh, of seminarians. Oh, definitely. I think I, I think uh, like our priest here in the U.S. had said that he'd done a lot, like a lot of the guys he'd worked with, not just the number in the Legion, but also a whole bunch of guys who would end up going to the diocese. Because a lot of times guys will discern with one community, uh, you know, maybe just go on a weekend retreat or go for, you know, a month kind of in a seminary and realize like, I'm not called this community, but it might be a big step for them to say, hey, I'm going to join the Dawson Seminary. Or hey, I'm gonna to go to this other community, you know. Like there was, there was, uh, you know, there was one guy who did like the summer with us, and then he went to join a much more contemplative community. He said, like, you know, I like this, but I think what God's calling me to be is to be more of a, you know, more in kind of a monastic community. Which mm. you know, you know, we're glad that we helped them to discover that vocation to a mon to monastic life because yeah. you know we're obviously not a monastic community so i'm not gonna we're not gonna try and you know fit a, a square peg into a round hole 
where is the legionaries of Christ today? Are they they're rebuilding? Are they are young men joining? Um, has it shaken off its that that reputational damage? Are people taking another look at it and getting past all the scandals? Well, yeah, I think at least for us, I'm not like I don't think about the scandals, and I think like a lot of the documents we've gone through, a lot of the kind of renewal we've done and the change of practice have really been super helpful for us and able, enabled us to really have that spiritual renewal. There are some young men joining. Uh, I think right now this summer we have, I think, eight young men discerning, if I remember correctly. Don't quote me if I'm off by one or two there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to, to enter the seminary uh, in uh, between, between uh, so we have, uh, you know, in the U.S., like post-high school or post-college, wherever they come from, I think there's eight total. And so that's that's a that's a kind of uh, you know there are young men uh, considering and joining and I you know I don't know if everybody's kind of gotten past it I don't think everybody has because every so often you know I'll see comments from people online that obviously they they feel like no I could never trust the legion again based on that and you know what I can't yeah that's 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 that person and I can't. I can't control that person. And I, you know, and I, and I understand that if they have that challenge, I'm not going to, you know. <laughs> now you're a young priest and I'm wondering what in general is the life of a priest like? And are, I know a lot of priests who are happy, they're holy, they're great workers. And I'm sure there are a bunch of priests out there who are not happy. And it, in my observation, it's the ones that tend to be less optimistic, tend to be the older priests. So I don't know what explains that. How do you see it? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, right now, because uh, I'm writing a doctoral thesis, my my day-to-day life is probably a lot different from most priests in a parish or something like that, because obviously yeah. in the parish you have, you know, you obviously have like meetings with somebody preparing for baptism, meetings with a couple preparing for marriage, meetings about like, you know, fixing up the leaky roof, all those types of things kind of the day-to-day. Yeah, right. Uh, and, and I think most priests are very happy. I think when they did a survey of like that, the, the people are most satisfied with their jobs, you know, priests were number one for you. Journalists were like, in the, were like number four or something out of all jobs. So <laughs> well, I would have put them so, down a little further down. Some of them are so miserable in their ideas. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they're happy in, in their jobs, you know, like in, in the, in that thing, whether, whether, whether you agree with their ideas, you think their yeah. ideas are just miserable and, but yeah, so I think priests in general are happy. I don't think I don't think you know every single, you know. Obviously, you get any group of. I think in the U.S. is about forty thousand priests. You're not going to have you know every single one super joyful and expressive and things. But I think overall, most priests are happy. Most priests, you know, live that life of faith, that life of you know chastity, poverty, and obedience, all those different things to to do. And I think. You know, and I think sometimes for our own lives, we we have, you know, like you were talking about the fervor. And I think one of the things is like we have our prayer life and we have to kind of turn to that prayer life and and really renew ourselves in that because that's our relationship with God is kind of our primary relationship. It's just like, you know, if you're a married couple and sometimes you kind of don't feel satisfied you're married, part of it is that the couple hasn't really like spent time focusing on each other on marriage. They haven't, they haven't gone out on a romantic date in, you know, in six months or a year. Right. Uh, you know, that's probably not a good, that's probably not the healthiest way to live a marriage. And the yeah. same way with the priesthood, except for it's like, you know, do you really go deep in prayer? Or do you, 
to make sure you make time for regular, you know, days or you know, days more focused on prayer, like little retreats or things like that. So yeah, I just wonder sometimes. Um, you know, I have great admiration for priests, and I, I, I just to make sure we're totally clear. I don't think their ideas are miserable, but I'm just saying a lot of the ideas journalists pursue, they're sometimes they're miserable. We like controversy, right? Oh yeah, um, I mean, if it, I mean, you know the old saying, love leads, controversy. If it bleeds, it leads. Isn't that the old you, saying? You, you stole the words from me. Yeah, exactly. That's how you sell newspapers. Um, <laughs> it's a pretty good uh, marketing, and sometimes you have to um, lead with the bleeding and so on. But I'm wondering, um, you know, uh, young men in seminaries, and maybe not so. There's um, older voc- vocations, I'm, I'm sh- uh, clearly, but. Um, you know, they're they're introduced to the life of a priest and they do their theology and they're going around meeting different priests out there and getting experience. And then when they actually go into a parish, do you think it lives up to their expectations? Is there any shock value when later on they find out they have to fix the leaky roof or, you know, they do a bit of fundraising to get the boiler repaired, car park, there's a lot of that admin stuff. I've never quite understood why they have to burden the parish priest with the, you know, fixing the boiler and stuff. Yeah. I would personally, I personally kind of agree as much as possible to kind of, you know, have as much of that as possible, you know, on someone else, the parish I grew up in had kind of in a way, and I, a, a semi ideal situation, maybe not like the perfect ideal where our, the permanent deacon at the parish was like, um, he had been, he had made enough money as an accountant that he did, he could, he could work for the lower salary that the church had, was willing to pay him. And he was basically the business manager and the pastor just kind of, you know, signed off on it. But like, you know, I remember, I remember as a kid, we had, uh, we were doing, we were doing athletic practice, which, you know, surprise, surprise. I was, I was a little altar boy when I was a kid. And, you know, and there were, he was, the deacon was in there showing these guys, you know, how to like, you know, they're, looking at fixing something. I don't remember what it was, you know, and, or you'd see like, you know, you, you'd go in on the weekday and he'd be there with like, you know, like the kind of stereotypical looks like an accountant's desk, you know, with all the, all the receipts and bills and things. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> I would be I mean, lost in that environment. Oh, oh definitely. I, I'm not, that's not my forte either, but I like, in a way that was, that was an excellent situation. I think, you know, yeah. there because because then the priest didn't have to do that. And he also had somebody he could, you know, fully trust because he was, you know, a permanent deacon. He was, you know, you know, definitely taking a pay cut from what he could have made, you know, in the private sector to work for the church. I don't know how much of a pay cut, but I'm pretty sure it was, he could have made more, you know, working for the local, uh, the local factory or some other business as their accountant or business or, you know, business manager, whatever you want to call it. I'm also reminded of something that um, Pope Francis said early um, in his pontificate about going out to the peripheries. And I'm, I'm sure he was referring to the barrios in South America, but also people who may be Catholic, but are not showing up at church or they don't have an active prayer life or they're not act, they don't participate in the church. Um, is there room there for priests to somehow evangelize lapsed Catholics? I feel sometimes there's an opportunity missed, but then again, priests are so overwhelmed with their current assignments. I don't know how they would find time to do that. Well, I think it just varies. I think, I think it just depends. You know, I've, I've tried to help a few people who've kind of asked me personally, you know, with things when they, when they were, you know, when they saw something online, they want to talk to me, um, you know, and things, 
But I do think like we were talking about a minute ago about how, you know, how much the administration we can, we can, you know, you know, not have the priest have to worry about. I think, you know, there is the sense that in the parish, the priest is the last one in charge. But if you're able to get, you know, a manager who does, who does most and the priest, you know, like looks over it and signs off on it. So it's, you know, like, like 90 minutes a week, you know, yeah. where he just talks to you, the, the business manager for an hour, hour and a half a week and takes care of everything. Doesn't have to worry about it, you know, like 10, 15 hours a week, like a lot of priests yeah. probably have to. It probably it probably works a lot better, uh, you know. I don't know, but I do think there is an opportunity to reach out to the peripheries. I think also we need to think of the peripheries here, also like uh, underserved groups within the United States. Because um, I remember I was in uh, a canon law class, uh, Dr. Ed Peters' class. Uh, I had to, had one class with Dr. Ed Peters, and he was talking about uh, how he has a deaf son and how there are so little, so few ministries in the church to deaf people in the United States, like in a lot of, a lot of dioceses, it's very hard to find, you know, uh, a mass with an interpreter. I mean, he, he's fluent in ASL because, you know, he learned it and he's, he's good with languages that he had a deaf son. So he, he learned it and he interprets for his parish, but he said, it's very hard sometimes for people to find those things in the church. And I think in the same way, a lot of times for autistics, it's hard to, to talk to them, to, to reach out to their peripheries as well. And so I think it's it's looking at all those different underserved groups, both the barrios, both the you know the the disabled, whether deaf or autistic, you know the the uh, the lapsed Catholics, like you were saying. And so I think there's a whole bunch of peripheries we need to be aware of. Underserved communities, poor communities, even even the people of fast wealth. They're some of the loneliest people on on the planet. Maybe oh, raised Catholics, but don't go to church anymore. Definitely. I could only imagine like, you know, like somebody like uh, a Bill Gates or something, how, how it's like, you can't, you can't trust anybody because anybody, because so many people who are around you, they're just around you to get the money because you yeah. have an immense amount of money, you know, and his, his wife was baptized Catholic. Uh, well, oh. I guess now his ex-wife, now they're divorcing, but uh, you know, he was, he was raised some kind of Protestant, but his, his wife, Melinda was raised Catholic. Wow. Interesting. Uh, well, Donald Trump's wife was is Catholic, and she may well be a practicing Catholic. Yes, I mean, uh, yeah, Melania too. I don't know. I don't like. I don't know what you know. She did say something at some point about like praying the rosary, but I haven't. Been... I've heard that said from people secondhand that she had a devotion to Fatima. Yeah, I was not. I was not keeping up on that super precisely. Mm -hmm. You know, um, as I was. So I said at the beginning, I had studied electrical engineering, computer engineering you know, um, in Western Canada as a kid, as a teenager, you know, like literally the summer I, uh, I was going I entered the seminary. My options were that and option B was go internship at Microsoft. So I, so I learned a lot about <laughs> Bill Gates and Melinda Gates okay. and things like that, you know, cause that was, that was kind of the field I was in before I entered, uh, before I, before I entered the seminary. I mean, I fully intended to, you know, you know, be the guy who designed the next, mouse or the next security like internet security thing for microsoft you know, oh that wow was, well, that that's was, bill gates loss if i didn't enter the seminary oh my gosh this is fun um so when you look broadly at the catholic church in the u.s and in the west and globally where we're at it's a mixed picture church attendance has declined vocations depending on which orders or which part of the country you look at is in crisis the faithful, maybe the vast majority, don't support some some of the fundamental teachings 
um, such as um, on contraception, place of the family, uh, divorce, and of course, abortion is very divisive. Maybe it's a 50-50 split within the Catholic Church. I'm not sure. Depend on, depends on what polling you look at. But then, you know, the, you take the other hand, there are a lot of Catholics who are su- just su- seem to be just going through the ritual, just going to church and then sort of leaving, leading lives where they don't even recognize maybe their neighbors or have time for the poor or even they may despise the super rich if they're into social justice. I mean, we're supposed to, like everyone, rich and poor. Um and, and, you know, a sort of a hedonistic lifestyle that has taken hold. And when I say all of that, there are tons and tons of very happy and content and wonderful examples of Catholics living the faith. What's your, what's your overall take here? Well, I think, I think the thing is that you have the positive and negative, and we do, have, we do have, in a way, a mission field here to work on. You know, for us, it, like, each one of the things we focus on is really forming apostles, really helping people uh, to really be those apostles, because it's not so much that we're going to go and reach out to everybody, like everybody, but we're going to help a bunch of people really go deep in their own prayer life, go deep in their own, you know, idea, sense of, you know, their mission to serve others. And from that, they might start an apostle, they might bring a whole bunch of other people back to the church as well. And so I think that there is, there is a lot of that today. You see a lot of, um, a lot, like you see like Sherry Waddell and the Forming Intentional Disciples, which is, which I think has been very good at helping that out. You see a lot of church parishes going to these small groups where, where, so that people can feel that sense of belonging, that's that sense of a personal relationship, even though they're in a parish where, you know, where it's a few hundred people at Sunday mass, and there's no way you can really know everybody. You know, yeah. my, my parents are like the, my, my parents parish, uh, they've been there since the beginning because it was like a new suburb, uh, when they moved out to the farm, uh, and, and they are, and they're like the ushers and everything, but even they don't know everybody at the church, you know, <laughs> like, even though they're like the ushers, they're the ones who've been there, you know, <laughs> since the church started, you know, 20, 20 some years ago, uh, the, the parish started 20 some years yep. ago, they don't know everybody. But I do think like a lot of times, like those small groups, whether it's Bible study or whether it's, you know, uh, you know, a rosary prayer group, something, having those that meet regularly creates that kind of that personal relationship. Because I think sometimes one of the biggest things that can be for that, for that going through the motions is just kind of, I go to church and there's 500 other people and I just go through the motion because there's no kind of relationship. There's no, there's no personal interaction, you know, uh, like in the same way that you would have. If like, you know, once a week we met and we, you know, we prayed the rosary and read one chapter of the Bible and talked about it for 10 minutes. And then yeah. we, you know, chatted and had, you know, you know, had snacks and chatted for half an hour. <laughs> yeah. And so that could bring these um, uh, parishioners closer together when they break up into into small groups. And yeah, and- you see, you see a lot of the, um, uh, that's one of the kind of consistent things that I've seen through the different parish rule things, whether you look at, whether you look at um, the one out of how there's the one out of like Timonium, Maryland, which is, and then you have, you have amazing parish and you have the one out of Halifax and you have the forming intentional disciples. They all kind of go to some kind of really uh, some kind of small group to really have that personal relationship, because that's so often what's missing with our huge, like Catholic megachurch, just because an average parish in a suburb yeah. is a megachurch. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe in a small town, it's not because yeah. like, you know, and there, there's more of that relationship, but then it's like the pastor has four of those small towns to visit every, you know, so you have the one mass on Sunday and everybody in that town goes to church. Yep. And then you see the pastor maybe one other day a week. So it's, it's a different relationship, but it's, but, it, but especially in the kind of suburban parishes, which is where I've spent most of my life is kind of, you know, you have these huge churches that are mega churches by, and, and the, 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 the sense of anonymity can come in very strongly and things like small groups break up that anonymity. Yeah. Well, where does that leave then Catholics disagreeing with the teachings of the church on something like abortion, even contraception? Maybe on the social justice issues. I mean, that that to me is always interesting. There should be social justice, but I'm not sure if the interpretation of it by some people is always correct. But just let's take on abortion, for example. If every Catholic in America went to church was pro-life, couldn't that shift the debate? And wouldn't that be an enormous amount of energy and resource into the whole movement? Oh, definitely. I think I think one of the things always with those surveys where they say Catholics is to look at the is to break the survey down by those who go regularly, you know, yeah. at least at least two to three times a month, uh, and those who don't go because because unlike a lot of other Protestant religions, people still identify as Catholic even if they've even if the last time they went to church was five years ago for for a relative's baptism or marriage, oh. uh, and, and and so. And so I think the cultural Catholics, you know, are going to be a different challenge. But I do think, you know, versus the, the ones who come, that's the first point. The second point would be about the, um, you know, we do need to explain a lot of things better. Uh, yeah. You know, I do think that on, on a lot of those issues, catechesis could be improved, uh, you know, and how we explain it. Um whether it's, you know, with a visiting priest who does, you know, preaches once, who comes in one Sunday a month, a year, kind of preaches on a tough issue like that. And so it kind of like the pastor doesn't have to take, take as much heat in that sense. And, the, and that preacher, because, you know, maybe he's, he does that, you know, like 20 Sundays a year, he has those, those, those sermons like really well done. So they aren't just, it's not that the pastor struggling to explain things, right? you know, and, and I think that there are ways to, to explain it that can help these people a lot uh, on all those church teachings. Because I do think that, I do think that there are people who, who have a good will, but, but are, are, you know, dissent on that for, for reasons that are just kind of, that if we go through and we help them, we can, they, they won't really dissent on those type mm. of issues. They won't really disagree with the church on those kind of issues. If we explain it well, if we, if we, listen to them and answer their questions and things like that. So what you say is interesting because it may mean that most Catholics who go to church once a week or regularly, maybe, maybe that whole cohort, and we hate to be doing studies and research and everything down to statistics, but they may well be overwhelmingly pro-life. Whereas those, the cultural Catholics who maybe tend to be less pro-life, although you can't even necessarily make that conclusion, but that's maybe how it shakes out. Yeah, I think I think in the polling it does shake out something like that. I don't remember the exact percentages, yeah. but I do know like you ask questions like, like is the Eucharist really Jesus or is it a symbol? And there's dramatic difference in the numbers between those two groups. Yeah, and on a lot of other moral issues like that, there's dramatic difference between those two groups. Um, I don't remember. I'd have to go and like look at the surveys to remember the exact percentages, but it's you know it's it's definitely 
in the double digits difference. You know, it's more than 10% yep. different on both of those questions between, you know, those who go to mass every Sunday and those who go maybe like once a year or less. I do know in the Northeast New York, New Jersey area, there's great support within church circles for the pro-life movement. And in some of the churches, if you have a fundraiser, it gets incredible support. So that may speak to that issue. Oh, definitely. I, I know. I know a lot of, like a most, a lot of parishes. You know, there's a lot of effort for that. I've seen parishes do a lot of different things. I know, like one parish, they had like you know uh, baby bottles where people were supposed to toss baby bottles yeah, for for like two uh, for like a month or something, and then they brought them back in, and that was all donated to the crisis pregnancy center or the home for unwed mothers in the area or something. You know, I know a lot of parishes you know, uh, will even be almost like a volunteer hub for those type of things that where they need, you know, people to come to help out with those things. Uh, and so I do think that in the church, there is a lot of, there's a lot of energy in parishes for, you know, helping out with, uh, with people who are thinking about abortion, helping out to prevent abortion, things like that. Uh, so I, I do think there is definitely a strong pro-life view of those who regularly attend mass. I can't remember the exact Ratio. It's not a hundred percent, but it's definitely not 50%. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a favorite saint? I have a few who, who are really impressive. Uh, when I was, when I was, uh, when the whole thing came down with Maciel, I had to think about it. And I said, you know what, I'm going to think of like, which, which saints I'm going to make as like a model, you know? And I was like, those who are priests, uh, you know, those who are priests, uh, you know, uh, who, and I, and I wanted them to be relatively recent, but already deceased. That was kind of one of my rules. And so the, the ones I would say is probably the first one would be, he's not technically a saint yet, but Fulton Sheen is oh. definitely a model for me. Uh, you know, I definitely think he is, he is a saint and hopefully he will be named a saint officially in my lifetime. Uh, John Paul II, uh, Don Bosco are really big examples. Uh, you know, it's kind of examples for me as a priest, you know, in that sense. Uh, there's other saints who I love, like St. Teresa Therese Lozou, who I love, you know, have read multiple times her, her story of a soul uh, and things like that. But uh, those are kind those three at least are, are examples for me. Do you believe in miracles? Oh, definitely. I mean, that's miracles can happen. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, I do have a, I do have kind of the view of the church that, uh, you know, we assume it's a natural cause unless, unless we've eliminated all the natural causes. Like, you know, if, you know, not to say like it's a miracle just because somebody, somebody recovered from cancer or something, because like we do know that the, the cert, you know, the, the chemotherapy has a certain degree of success rate or something. Mm -hmm. But I do think, you know, like, um, for John Paul II, there was that nun who had this incurable, I feel it was like incurable arthritis, you know, and she, one night she goes to pray to John Paul II, and the next morning she's down praying in the chapel, and all the other nuns, all the other nuns think that, like, what's going on? Because, like, you've have, you've barely, you've barely been able to, like, sit up in bed for the last, like, two months, and, you know, instantly we prayed John Paul II, and you're down here in the chapel kneeling. I've heard of a few people who have had terminal illnesses and having these remarkable recoveries and they happen to be very religious people and pray a lot or they went to a shrine or a model none of this ever gets really recorded it's all hearsay oh definitely i think i think that there are kind of like those little miracles we can't prove one way or the other yeah you know, uh and those are helpful and god is helping people out and then there are those like those bigger miracles that are like you know really obvious and we look at for any possible 
cause and we're like there's no possible cause for this and you know and then all this you know and those are like the ones that are that the the church uses when it's going to declare a miracle for you know for for canonization or something i remember there was one where like they they cut off a guy's leg amputated because he had something wrong with it and then his leg like grew back you know and they're like you know like like there's no way that that happens naturally that's never been recorded in like in history you know you know or you know, or things like that, where it's just like completely beyond any kind of natural explanation. But at the same time, you know, like sometimes it's like, well, you know, there's a lot of diseases today where it's like there's a 25% uh, chance that you're going to like, you know, recover from this and they recover. Well, there was a 25% chance. I mean, it could be a miracle. It could not be. I can't prove it. Yeah. Well, they, they do thorough research and bring scientists in and these investigations go on endlessly. Then they conclude, yeah, this was a miracle. Somebody tried to disprove that. No, they can't. Case shot. <laughs> oh, definitely. Well, no, definitely. I think, I think that the church's attitude in that regard is, is, is very good because I think, I think it's, it's not healthy to be, you know, it's not healthy for the church to officially declare anything that could sound cre- like overly credulous, you know, in yeah. that sense. Going back to your autism, you had this t-shirt made up. Yes. I, I remember, which I thought was very creative, right? Can you tell us about that? So when I was going to, when I was going to go public and when I thought about it and I was praying about it, I said, you know what, I, you know, I need, I made a shirt that just said autistic Catholic and it had kind of uh, the, one of the symbols for autism, which is kind of the infinity symbol, but with a, a, a kind of a, a gradient rainbows around it not, and, and things and then Catholic with the papal flag behind it. Um, you know, and I was just thinking like that something like that would be very clearly expressive of you know, being both autistic and Catholic in that sense. And so I have it, if you go on Redbubble and you search it, it's available. Anybody can buy a copy of it. Um, you know, I, I got a copy myself in black so I could wear it over top with the collar still coming out through the, through there, but, uh, it's just a t-shirt so you can, and you can get it in like, I don't know, a dozen or 20 colors, or whatever, however many colors they, they have on their website. I just, I just set it up on there. Redbubble is kind of one of these ones where, artists can put up their designs and people, you know, print it. And then, you know, I get 25% of whatever you paid for it. So you have your new book coming. That'll be months away. You're putting the finishing touches to it. And so where does your journey take you now for the next year? What's the program? Well, other than the, uh, other than the, um, the book, the biggest thing for the next year is just finishing my doctoral thesis in moral theology. Mm -hmm. Um, After I was diagnosed and uh, I was talking to my superiors and with the other talents that I, you know, obviously was, you know, didn't like was able to succeed academically and even had a few experiences pretty good where I, where I seemed to be pretty good as a teacher it was thinking more like, you know, go like to go into that field because there is some of that social interaction as a professor or something, but you don't need to be as sensitive to it as you do in a spiritual direction setting or in a school chaplain setting or things like that where a lot of my community is. So the idea would be to finish a doctoral thesis and then hopefully in, you know, like in the fall of 2022, so just over a year from now, probably start teaching at like a Catholic university or a seminary somewhere in the U S or something. So the exact one is, is not, not determined. There's not like I have a job waiting for me once I'm done or anything. There's a lot ahead, a lot to look forward to. You're doing great work. And you know, it's been a great pleasure, Father Matthew, having you on my show and let's catch up again soon. Excellent. Well, God bless you. Hopefully, hopefully the show goes well and hopefully we're able to help people uh, both on the spectrum and off the spectrum to really live their faith better. 
You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.